flight. What a beautiful thing to see a hawk flying high overhead or an eagle soaring majestically through the trees. You know, we look at these things and they inspire us to try and accomplish flight as well. But will we ever get close to the efficiency of these creatures? Find out now on Wonders Without Number. Isn't it amazing that the tiny hummingbird stays off the radar of other birds by laying low in their tiny nest? You know, that's merely the tip of the iceberg because once they leave their nests, hummingbirds are the acrobats of the air with some incredible feats. Now, my guest today is going to delve deeper as we tackle flight designed for the sky. Professor Andy McIntosh has his PhD in combustion theory from the Cranfield Institute of Technology. He has a doctorate of science from the University of Wales, and he's worked as a research professor at the University of Leeds in the UK. His research and lectures have led him around the world, and he's even discussed the laws of thermodynamics with Richard Dawkins on BBC. So join with me now as we meet my friend and very special guest, Professor Andy McIntosh. Welcome Good to, to the be program. with you, David. Yes, sir. It is wonderful to have you here. Now, you have done groundbreaking research on combustion of the bombardier beetle. You've done all of these different things, but you also have a passion for the birds of the air, don't you? I do. In fact, I did four years with aerodynamics with uh, the Royal Aircraft Establishment, wow. as it was then called. Okay. And so I've done a lot of work on aircraft. I know a little bit about aerodynamics, which is uh, why I'd love to talk about natural aerodynamic experts, <laughs> which of course are the birds. Okay. But, you know, it was uh, two bicycle makers mm. who actually discovered what, how to really make man-made machines. They had developed something which was inspired by what the birds were doing. Okay, break this, break biomimicry down. What does that mean? Biomimetics means copying nature with a view to using it in engineering. Okay. And it was Wilbur Wright who was actually the one who really had the idea of copying the birds. He even did a wind tunnel with... Uh, with Orville, and uh, there they were in North Carolina on a very windy beach eventually yeah. in December the 17th, 1903, and they managed to work out, even though they had their bowler hats and the else <laughs> on, but they, they, I think they took the bowler hats off before, off before they actually yes. flew, but I, I'd rather think they still had their ties on. <laughs> but anyway, these two brilliant bicycle makers yeah. understood really the principles of aerodynamics, and as you, uh, this famous wonderful picture of the yes. first flight shows you, they, they flew about the distance of a, the length of a Boeing 747, that's about the distance really? they flew. It was just amazing. Huh. Now, that all happened, as I said, in 1903. But earlier, people had thought that, you know, it was just by adding a few um, wings on your arms that that would actually do it. But of course, that's nonsense. You're not going to do it. That chap probably jumped to his death. <laughs> and other people were taking the idea of going with a lighter than air, uh, you know, balloon. Okay. But that, of course, is one means of transport into the yeah. air. But we're talking about heavier than air uh, machine which is getting into the air. How do you do it? Well, the birds do it, of course, using feathers. Now, a feather is a remarkable device in its own right. But you haven't just got to have any feathers. You've got to have primary feathers in the right place, secondary feathers, which are less curved, okay. tertiary feathers, and then you've got to have covering feathers. You've also got to make what we call an aerofoil shape, David. Okay. And an aerofoil shape is like this. Don't worry about all the other words here, but look at this shape here. Yes. Now that shape is very important for making sure that the air bends. And wherever there is a bending of the air, there's uh -huh. got to be an equal and opposite force against it, which is what gives you lift. So you get the lift because of it. And if you because of the turning it. of the flow. 
to an airplane wing, you're yeah. going to see a lot of similarities. There. Absolutely. And that's what Wilbur understood right at the beginning. So if we look at a wing of a bird, uh -huh. a wing of a bird, of course, is made of feathers, which uh, are like these feathers oh. here I've got of pigeons can, can and other creatures. You can have one there. Excellent. So, But now if you're going to make a wing of using feathers, you've got to have the thickness looking end on right, ah. as well as looking from above. What I showed you earlier was looking from above. We've also got to get this aerofoil shape. Okay. And that's not easy to do. <laughs> this is a picture I took in Scotland of a white-tailed eagle. Beautiful. And you can see it here. Just see this huge curvature on an, this is a bit like the bald eagle, but a bit bigger. It's called a white-tailed eagle. And even the little winglets yeah. curving upwards. That's right. Wow. Everything's got to be right in the structure. Here's another picture of it. Look at the ah. way it's curving yes. its wings in this very tight maneuver it's doing, uh -huh. turning towards the camera. And these things don't come without careful design. So when evolution says that they came from these creatures... <laughs> <laughs> Scales turning into feathers. Th this is just nonsense, David. Yeah. That's not real science. That's just willfully suppressing the truth, as the Bible says in Romans 1.18. When the evidence is strongly showing you that scales of a reptile are very different to feathers. Okay. So, is that true? No, it's false. And it's big time false, because if you look up what a, a feather grows from, mm -hmm. it actually grows from a little tube which comes from under the skin. Okay. It doesn't come from the same place as where scales, scales. come from. And it actually, a feather actually grows initially in a little tube, a bit like the tube of a, a big pen. You know, okay. it sort of grows in this tube and then uh, sort of comes out. Yeah, yeah. And this is called a follicle. It's very different than a scale. Very different. And this, this, it's got a little growth color at the bottom. So okay. if, if I show you a little, quick little film as to what's going on, yeah. you've got the feather growing in this tube and then it Unfurls. Yeah. And this little keratin tube, it's all made of keratin, uh -huh. um, which there's a lot of keratin. We have keratin on our fingernails, yes. keratin on my hair, which I used to have, <laughs> and all this sort of thing. We have keratin, a lot of it. Uh -huh. But this keratin is very fine and then crumbles away after the bird has molted. Okay. So every feather is put in the right place. But even just one feather is a remarkable design structure. If I separate the barbs mm -hmm. here, right, you'll see that I can just by running my finger along here, Reconnect. If you, if you just focus in uh, on the screen here, you might just be able to see me doing this. Okay. You can actually see that when I you separate, separate And you this, see that little snap. Yeah, there's a snap there. But what's going on here is truly remarkable because you can make it come back together again. <laughs> so there is a structure which is only visible when you actually look under the microscope. Wow. There are barbules. These are the barbs, right? Yes. These are barbs. But... What I'm talking about between the barbs uh -huh. is barbules, which are only visible under the microscope. That literally hook around. Exactly. Each, each one of these is hooking, right, yes. on barbules which have ridges coming from the other side. So barbules coming this way okay. have 
curtain rail ridges. Yes. And barbules coming this way have the curtain hooks. Hooks. Cur cur curtain rail hooks, which are sliding over the ridges. <laughs> now, and this is this is scanning electron microscope. Uh, yeah. Oh well, you don't need to necessarily go to an SEM, but you can okay. certainly need a very high-powered microscope to see this. Good friend of ours, David. David Minton. Doctor Minton has done a lot Good of work. Good man. Yes. He's done a huge yeah. amount on this. So it's a bit like Velcro, and of course, with this, you need some oil. Okay. In order to make sure this works. Every bird has a special gland at the base of its spine in order to actually make sure that you, you've got lubrication for this system. Oh. So is that evolutionary magic? No. It's brilliant engineering as is shown by this preening uh, bird. Uh, so when you see a bird pelican. twist its neck around and it's, it's, it's getting oil from that gland is what you're saying. Yeah, that's right. And then it can connect to all of those where everything operates smoothly. Absolutely. So you could say that millions of years of chance slowly developed all of these features, but it needs all those basic components to start yeah. with. It has to have connections and barbules to connect everything together so that it can generate lift. It has to have the oil so that everything uh, can be, yep. can flow smoothly. But look, when you take some hardened resin which the evolutionists will say is a fossil from 50 million years uh -huh. ago. I don't accept the dates <laughs> at all. What do you find trapped in this resin? Something which is very similar to a modern feather. Wow. And even the 125 year old, 125 million year old, supposedly that date, Archaeopteryx. Okay. You can see, you can see in the fossil that it's exactly the same as a modern feather. Clearly. So an Archaeopteryx actually was a bird. Okay. It had didn't have as big a sternum as birds have today, but it just means that it was another type of bird which had hooks on its wings. It had a bony tail, also had teeth, but it just means that it was an extinct bird. That's all it is. It wasn't a transition. Absolutely. And and so when. Evolutionists point to these things and they say, well, there's, there's been no change over millions of years. You say, doesn't that seem to indicate creation? And then they would say, no, this, this indicates stasis. Absolutely. They had everything they needed and Absolutely. so it just didn't evolve. It's sort of hard to believe and it goes against some of Darwin's basic theories that these features would not evolve for a hundred million years. Yeah, exactly. So even if you were to take the evolutionist timescale, everything indicates that this is another example. Everything indicates that birds have always been birds. This is a little hatchling, again trapped in resin. Okay. But when you actually look at this under the, um, they, they do special uh, analysis of this and they're able to extract what that bird really looked like. It looks just like a modern bird. Wow. And this is a hatchling, supposedly millions of years old. Okay. But it's actually no different to a modern bird. So, so birds have always been birds. Birds have always been birds. So Dawkins, when he was asked about the feather, said, I suppose it's a matter of faith on my part. <laughs> Let me look at another issue. And that's this, that in order to get flight to work, you need control systems, right? Here's a Lockheed TriStar from years ago, landing in the snow, right? Okay. And it's got flaps. Right here. Okay. Yes. Now, extended. how do birds operate with their wings? Well, they also need something like flaps, like on Ford flaps also that an aircraft has. Okay. Well, here's a picture of a swan, which shows that it has a means of changing the camber, uh -huh. but it uses muscles, right, to change the camber of its wings. All this happens just 
at an instant as an eagle or a swan or even a little hummingbird changes it, the shape of its wings. It doesn't need to have these screws and everything yes. to put flaps down. And it's far more intricate, it has far more control yeah. and it works perfectly. And yet when we try to develop something similar to this to make man-made aircraft work and we put a lot of engineering behind it, some people still say. See look, that took a lot of design, Absolutely. David. So why should we say that the other is not designed, which is actually better in many ways than that? It is. You mentioned winglets earlier. Did you know that winglets only came in in, about in the last maybe 15, 20 years? Really? And it was because they realized that eagles and other creatures which have winglets are right. actually reducing the trailing vortices, which reduces the technical term is induced drag, which you always get as a result of a finite lifting system shedding its vorticity, which is really causing the lift wow. at the end. So in order to reduce that effect, you have winglets. Okay. And it saves, saves quite a lot of money in the long lead up to landing aircraft, which uses a lot of fuel. Yes. Let me move on to, um, to hovering though. Okay. This is um, a kestrel. You have uh, a somewhat more colorful kestrel over here in the States. Mm -hmm. But these birds, hover by flicking the end of their wings like that and okay. they balance against the tail. Now that's pretty good. They it can is. actually hover in a 30 mile an hour wind without any difficulty. Wow. But I think we all agree that the one which takes the biscuit, we would say, <laughs> but you say the cookie. The one which takes the cookie out of all this is hummingbirds. It is. Hummingbirds are just astonishing because they're not doing it by the same principle. They're twisting their wings like this. So it's like a figure eight, basically. Like a figure of eight motion, which the tip ah, of the yes. wing is doing. Okay. And what they're doing also is twisting their humerus bone in, in a motion which we can't do. Uh -huh. There is a special ball and socket joint in hummingbirds which enables their, their, the twisting to be an awful lot more than other birds could do. Hmm. They also keep out their, their wrist almost locked. Okay. Because birds usually have this sort of flapping motion. Right, Hummingbirds right. don't do that. They this keep, is rigid, it's, okay. It's, they keep it rigid yeah. and it's doing this. And it's doing it at 50 to 60 times per second. Per Even second. 100 or 150 has been recorded. Now, okay, so we pause for one second. A good friend of ours, Benjamin Owen, yep. produced a film called Refracted Glory. I had the privilege of hosting it. You were interviewed as a part of this. It is truly incredible. When you have to slow this down, we've got cameras here running at 30 frames a second. When you have to bring in cameras to run at 700 frames per second just to capture the figure of eight motion, that's incredible. It's almost as if these creatures were designed to do what they do. Of course they're designed. <laughs> Everything's showing <laughs> that they were designed. Uh, that, that motion yeah. that you've just talked about has been taken by very fast photography, as you can see here, yes. on this blue-throated hummingbird. Look at this twisting motion mm. of the wings. In a split second, they're changing their wing motion. And if you change it slightly more on this side to that side, then you get a sideways motion. Okay. Similarly, you can get backwards motion. You can go in any direction you wish mm. when you're a hummingbird, which is why they appear to just simply dart right. in any direction they wish uh -huh. and even go upside down. With which full is, control. Which, 
which, as you say, with full control. Perhaps one of the things which is also an, uh, we need to draw attention to oh. is the tongue. Okay. okay. That tongue, which is shown on the video uh -huh. we've just been referring to, is a marvel because it actually is not two little straws sucking up the fluid of the nectar. It's actually two little tubes okay. which unfurl and literally lap up like cups the nectar. Then it's drawn back together again as the, the tongue comes back in. And the tongue is going in and out five to ten times per second as the bird is flapping its wings 50 to 60, 100, 150 <laughs> times per second as it's hovering. Oh. Let me though mention yet another thing about birds. This is not hummingbirds now, this is all birds. Okay. All except the diving birds like the loon bird and a few others which need heavier bones, particularly mm -hmm. uh, in some parts of their bodies. But most birds have hollow structure to okay. their bones to keep them light. But let me also sh say that they need a special muscle supporting their wings, which is all to do with this one here. Can I point at that? Yeah, yeah, uh, right, right here. Yeah, that special muscle is an extra muscle okay. in order to lift the wings. Oh. Now, we can lift our humerus bone. Yeah. In fact, we're doing that if we're going to do backstroke in tennis okay. or backstroke in swimming. Swimming. But it, but it hurts us. Right. We're actually trying to use a muscle on our backs, which is not very strong. Okay. Whereas a bird has a special further muscle called a supracoracoideus muscle. Okay. What we're looking at there is looking down the breastbone, the okay. sternum bone. There's a better picture of it here. Oh, yeah, yeah. So this is the main muscle, the pectoralis major muscle, mm -hmm. which is that, that muscle there. Okay. But there is another muscle they have a special for muscle. lifting the wing. And it's basically wrapped around their bones in such a way that it becomes natural to lift. Absolutely. And this is a very, it's called the supracoracoideus muscle because it's going above the coracoid. Super, oh, okay, okay. Big that's name, but big simple name, but meaning. it means something. Yes. Yeah, that's right. And here's a video of it explaining what is happening. This is the muscle drawing the wing down. That's uh -huh. the muscle we have. And but this the one extra muscle is that. It's interesting. Supracoracoideus muscle. Very interesting. So, Without that, birds couldn't operate properly. They wouldn't be able to take off from ground. Birds okay. have to have this supracoracoideus muscle. Huh. Where did that come from? Reptiles don't have that muscle, but birds do. Uh -huh. Birds also breathe very differently. By the way, if your budgie dies, or you'd call it a parrot in, over in this part <laughs> of the world, if your little parrot dies, mm -hmm. your pet parrot, you cannot actually bring it back to life again as you might be able to do with a human being, you know, give it the kiss of life. Right. Don't try that with your parrot. <laughs> it, it won't be possible because birds have a continuous flow lung. You're listening to Wonders Without Number with David Reeves. The message presented today was filmed in studio at David Reeves Ministries Wonders of Creation Center and is available in video format with powerful accompanying visuals. Subscribe to our Genesis Plus package online to get instant access to the video format of this message and hundreds of others right on your computer or mobile device. If you are encouraged by this message and would like to be a part of sharing this information with millions across the globe, we would love to hear from you. Give us a call at 
212-7990 or write us at David Reeves Ministries, Post Office Box 2824, Lewisburg, Tennessee, 37091. Visit our website, davidreeves.com today. That's davidreves.com. And now, back to Wonders Without Number with David Reeves. The lung is constantly passing air through it. So it allows it to utilize the oxygen more efficiently. It does. You need less mass in order to make such a system because the air is going in one direction and the blood is going in the opposite direction. Uh So it's a counterflow mass exchanger system in the lung, which means that birds breathe in an entirely different way. The air initially comes down the trachea to a rear air sac. Okay. Then the air is, when it's been breathing out an earlier packet of air, then this packet of air that we're following goes through the lung, as I've just described. Oh, okay. Then you breathe in again, another packet of air goes to the back, and the packet of air that we're following at that point now goes to a front air sac such that when you breathe out, you finally breathe out this packet of air that we're following. So it's a two-stroke breathing system, which (laughs) takes two breathings in and out to get one packet of air through the system. Now, flight and hovering and all of that's one thing. But when we look at migration, that's something else. It's just stunning. David, somebody once asked, why do birds fly south in winter? Uh Because it's too far to walk. (laughs) (laughs) But seriously, did you know these Arctic terns are just marvels? Do you know, in one lifetime of an Arctic tern, an average Arctic tern, Mm. will have flown to the moon and back (laughs) in the 30 years or so that it flies. They have plenty of frequent flyer points. (laughs) They sure do, but they don't go with United Airlines. They actually, they they fly these, they're they're not very large, uh, a tern. It's it's not a big bird. And it flies all the way from the North Pole to the South Pole in the Arctic winter and the reverse in the Antarctic winter. You know, you actually uh, wrote a book called Genesis for Today. Yes. And in that you have an appendix on design. Yes. In your opinion, is this design from a space alien? No. No. Because we're dealing here with a mind behind intricate creatures which are designed to be in this world. So you're not dealing with an alien mind, you're dealing with a mind which is very much connected with this world. It makes sense. And who actually, the Bible says, came into this world as the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes. The same mind which made the world commanded the oceans to be, or commanded the water of Galilee, not the ocean, to be still. still. But he also said, Peter, we should pay taxes. Yes, we should pay taxes. Just go and fish, uh, Peter. And the first fish that you catch will have a coin in its mouth. That means that he could command a fish to come (laughs) to the hook of Peter, or whatever he was using, Mm -hmm. and 
there was a coin in its mouth. So he knows every single detail. He also says he knows the hairs of your head. Right. Well, I haven't got many for him to <laughs> count now, but he knows us in detail. So not only did he create us, but he has the rule over everything that happens in his creation. Absolutely. And he also says in Hebrews chapter 1, David, he sustains all things by the word of his power. I find this stunning, you know, because when Jesus Christ died on the cross mm -hmm. to take away our sins, and we should all believe in him, yes. not only as our creator, but as the one who bled and died for us. That's right. I find this a stunning thought, that he was actually sustaining the very nails mm. in his hands, mm. and even sustaining the breath of his persecutors those as he died on the cross that's right there was also sustaining andromeda <laughs> right that wonderful All the galaxy way out into the universe yes he was sustaining the whole universe even as he died for us 